welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today for what is now episode 98. And as always, you are joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack. Now, before we get into today's episode, we just want to remind you as always that if you do enjoy these podcasts, please feel free to tell your family and friends about them, take a screenshot, post it to your social media stories. Also, if you are listening on the iTunes podcast app, please feel free to leave us a review and give us a rating. We would greatly appreciate it. And if you are interested in getting in touch with us regarding our coaching services, you can always head over to our website at www.thebodybuildingdietitians.com, which you can find in the show notes below or any of our Instagram bios. And we don't just coach physique athletes, we do coach anyone with a health and fitness related goal. So kicking off the podcast with this first question, it says, does rinsing and draining the fat off ground beef make it lower in fat? So interesting question. I feel like we've done a few like this recently with like peanut butter. I think another one with fish as well. Mm -hmm. And now onto beef. Yeah. Although this technique is a bit different. So (laughs) basically, I guess the thing that comes to mind, first of all, is that fat is not water soluble. Mm -hmm. So what that means is that like when you try and mix water and olive oil together, one will sit on top of the other or they won't, Mm -hmm. they won't disperse evenly into each other. Exactly. So fat is hydrophobic, right? It's scared of water. It will repel water. (laughs) Yeah. So the, the technique of rinsing your cooked meat will not, it won't really work very effectively. You Mm -hmm. might rinse some off if it's hot enough. But especially if, as soon as it cools, it'll then start to solidify again because that sort of fat is a solid at room temperature. Yeah, exactly. Saturated fat. I guess a good analogy for that would be, you know, imagine if you have a pan and you've just cooked something quite oily or fatty in that pan, and then you put that pan under the tap, but you're just trying to rinse it with water, right? Mm. It doesn't work. The pan is still really oily and greasy. So that's why we actually use soap because soap, it has surfactants in it. So a surfactant, it actually has a hydrophilic head and a hydrophobic tail. So soap, it's pretty similar to a phospholipid, right? If you guys remember in biology, every single cell in the body, it's actually made of a phospholipid bilayer. So those are two little fatty acids, right? And you've got the hydrophobic tail and you've got two of those, right? And they come together. And then you've got the hydrophilic head and they're on either outside of the, well, they're on the inside of the cell and the outside of the cell. But anyway, a surfactant in soap, right? Because that has a hydrophilic head and a hydrophobic tail, it actually helps to break down those bonds within the fats and help to separate fat from water and other material, right? So that's why when you have soap and you're washing a pan, that helps to remove the oil from the pan, right? Or if you're washing your hands because they're really oily or something like that or greasy, that the soap helps to break that down. So so you can't wash the meat in soap though. <laughs> That's the thing, right? So if you actually wanted to try to remove some of the fat from your meat, you would have to wash it with some soap, which do not recommend, you know? <laughs> So, uh, no, you can't just rinse the meat, right? It's not, that's not going to help get the fat off. You know, if it's obviously the, most of the fat in meat is saturated fat, right? So it is solid at room temperature. So I guess you could try to pick it off with your fingers. Or if you had something like some chicken breast or something, obviously the white bits guys, that's the fat. So you can just chop that off. 
But you have to think as well, right? Like if you're trying to save a little bit of money, and we're talking about a little bit of money here, right? We're talking about like a few dollars mm. uh, compared to buying like, you know, very lean ground beef compared to just regular ground beef. And what do you think the percentage difference there, Jack, would be fat in fat? Um, maybe I honestly, it depends on the grade of meat. Mm-hmm. And I think in, in the US, they even have more variety in terms of like, 85 15 or whatever it may be but let's just say like 10 percent extra fat mm-hmm. on average exactly right but you're thinking like okay cool so i'll buy the slightly cheaper meat right so maybe it's like eight dollars a kilogram versus ten dollars a kilogram right but let's say that you had 80 percent meat there and then 20 percent of it was fat and you wanted to get rid of the fat right If you're trying to get rid of that fat and chop it off or wash it away or whatever the heck you're trying to do, right? You still purchase that fat. You still paid for Mm. it by the kilogram or by the pound. Now you're throwing it away. So why not pay a few extra dollars and get to keep all of the products that you just purchased? Yeah. The other thing that comes to mind before we get onto the, I guess the more final thing that stands out to me is that it's one of those things where you just don't really need to worry about it yeah. too much. You're literally splitting hairs. <laughs> yeah. And, but the final thing is assuming someone who is doing this, I would assume that they would be tracking macros mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So when you're rinsing something, you're going to be adding weight from water to that because water is naturally going to, although the, some of the mints will be hydrophobic, you're still going to accumulate some water in there. Mm-hmm. That's going to skew the weight of the mints anyway. So then when you try and weigh it out and do the math and figure out the the equivalent macros, the water is going to be skewing that number anyway. So you're going to lose accuracy from that. So yeah, as Tierra said, like if you picture it like this, if you try and you get a kilo of meat and you move, remove 10% of it due to 10% fat, then you're down to 900 grams. Then if you do the math, like let's say it's $10 a kilo, then it's, and the, the, the more expensive ones, $12 a kilo, you've just removed a dollar anyway from mm-hmm. that. So it's now only a dollar more. Exactly. Well, my math might not be, you get the idea. <laughs> We're dietitians, guys, not mathematicians, but we try our best. But uh, no, I'm, and I'm the exact same with fruit, right? So you know, like if you want to buy a certain type of fruit, but you know, you like, you're just going to be eating the pulp and you're not going to be eating the really thick skin. So for example, something like passion fruit, right? Like, and you pay for these things by the kilogram, but like you cut open a passion fruit, you get a few seeds. Yeah, they taste good. But then you throw away like the entire shell, but you paid for that shell, you know? So that's what I think about sometimes with fruit. So I'm sometimes like, or it's kind of like buying really cheap fruit and then having to cut half of it away and you're still paying for it. (laughs) That is true, man. Like really, yeah. Just like really soft strawberries and stuff like that. Yeah. I totally get what you mean. But, um, yeah, that's, that's the thing that sometimes sucks with actually buying some fruits and vegetables. Like if you have to peel away the skin and take a bunch, you still paid for that. So sometimes like, you know, everyone likes to save money. So I'm always generally a really good big advocate for actually buying fruit where you can actually eat the skin right or like it's a really thin skin like if i'm buying oranges or something i try to buy the ones with actually thinner skin so i can actually eat more of the orange i'm not throwing away a hundred grams worth of skin every time i eat an orange good point i've never even thought about that (laughs) yeah well you know these little things right when um you know groceries add up and everyone's got to pay for their bills so Yeah, there we go. I guess the final thing is, is that if you wanted to 
obviously buy some meat and then cook it. And obviously we know at high temperatures that fat is going to melt. Even obviously saturated fat, right? You are raising it to a temperature that it is going to melt away in the pan. And then you try to just, you know, pour out that fat from the pan. Even then it's really not going to be that accurate, right? So even if you cook your meat, melt the fat. there's a lot of water that comes out as well. Yeah, a lot of fluid's going to come out. And even when, if you poured away the fat, right, you still cooked that meat in the fat. So you'd still have quite a bit of fatty acids and oil in there too. So Man, I would say, you know, if you want to go for a leaner cut of meat, just spend an extra dollar or two and buy yourself a leaner cut of meat. Otherwise, just track the fat as normal, right? And mm. again, there's nothing necessarily or inherently wrong with saturated fat. The general guidelines are that you just want less than 10% of your total daily calories coming from saturated fat. So you don't have to avoid it like the plague. You can still have a little bit of saturated fat in your diet. So there's nothing, nothing necessarily wrong with eating a little bit of fat off a steak or off a pork chop or something. You just want to make sure you're including other sources of dietary fat across the day in your diet too. Yep. That's right. Sweet. All right, guys. So that was the first question. So this next question says, if you guys had to choose another career, what would it be? Cool. So this is something that I probably only in the last like one to two years, I would have made a decision on. And like even after graduating dietetics, I probably, I wasn't thinking this and it's probably going to change in the future as well. But like at the moment would probably be physiotherapy because I see it quite similarly to nutrition as well. How so any other allied health really where someone comes to you with an issue, you diagnose it together and then you give them a treatment plan for it, just like nutrition. And on a, on a, it's, I find it just as intricate on a, on a different level. So like the intricacies of how different muscles support each other or trying to figure out, especially in areas that are very complex, like, I don't know, there are so many different muscles in the forearm, like the forearm flexes and extensors and trying to figure out like, oh, which forearm flexor is it? Or um, why have you got some elbow tendonitis? Is it due to weakness or tightness? Like I find that really interesting and complicated and having the ability to help someone and delve into that complexity. I'm sure people see, like because I've studied nutrition, like it's very, like I can see it very black and white now in a sense. It's very quite easy for me to simplify it in my head, mm-hmm. but I can't do that for physiotherapy, which is probably what attracts me to it as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it is definitely problem solving. And I just admire physios, man, because like, you know, to me, and maybe this is going to come across as an insult. And I actually coach quite a few physiotherapists and we have physios who are friends. And, you know, obviously we've had Scott on the podcast and stuff, but like, man, would you say it's almost like a really well-educated guess? Do I mean like, cause you can't see it, right? You can't actually see that someone is like, someone's telling you that they're hurting in a certain spot. Right. Mm. But like, it's not like they have a visible cut on their arm or it's not like they have necessarily a broken bone or something like that. Like you have to use so much knowledge and prior skills and just understanding of how the body works to really, you know, understand that, okay, this person's saying that their lower back hurts, but it might not necessarily be the lower back that's the issue. It might actually be weak glutes, you know, or weak hip flexors or whatever it may be, right? Mm. 
but um, I just admire them because they can they can look at someone on a superficial level, right? And like really understand like, man, what's really going on underneath without actually looking under the hood. So I fully respect that and I think it's remarkable. Yeah, and as I said, I'm sure people see nutritionists or dietitians mm-hmm. like that, but I should also disclaim that I would want it to be within my current scope of practice, which is like with uh, active people and bodybuilders and athletes because uh, I find that a bit more interesting like involving how they can maximize their performance like looking at their technique and their lifts and their training I would find that really interesting and like in saying what you mean by like an educated guest like I can agree with that to an extent but like just the way they perceive things I think like because we haven't studied that I think it might be a bit more not simple but a bit more thorough than you would expect like. no i'm definitely not saying that you know you walk into a physiotherapist right and like they say they just guess what the issue is obviously because mm. yeah. like if someone has lower back you can say like okay is it structural is it muscular mm-hmm. and then what are the associated muscles or mechanisms that would cause back pain and then you can kind of tick all of those off yeah and say okay would this be it would this not be it mm-hmm. and maybe even sometimes being wrong but then helping something else might still resolve the issue yeah you know what i mean yeah well you know it's kind of similar to dietetics right like we don't unless you're like taking blood work or you actually you know run tests to actually look inside someone's body right and see if they are potentially deficient in something when you actually do a detailed dietary recall with someone and you might notice that okay this person isn't regularly consuming any sources of dietary iron and they're also noting that they are usually very fatigued and tired. You know, they're regularly getting bruises all over their body and they've also got some dark bags under their eyes. Then you could actually make the, I don't want to say educated guess, right? But you could potentially infer that, okay, this person actually might be iron deficient. So one, let's run that up with a blood test, but also for some precautionary measures, let's get some dietary iron into this person, right? So you take those different measures depending on what type of health practitioner you are and whatever avenue you're going down. But still, like, I do think that physios are just remarkable because they really do see it on a superficial level and they have to put so many different pieces together. And boy, the anatomy in itself, that's Mm. what I got to ask you. Like, (laughs) could you have gone through all that uni anatomy? (laughs) I think now I could, but back then I would have really struggled. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because we did that basic anatomy course and that was very difficult and I wouldn't even say that was basic it's like sure it was first year anatomy but we learned the name of every muscle and yeah. bone and tuberosity and every organ and not just the names of these I things I honestly but think like, that's a bit old-fashioned though like because now we have so much technology at our disposal that I think having that understanding is good but like I don't think you should necessarily be examined on it I think you should be examined on the ba- on the underlying principles and critical thinking but testing you on like okay which muscle is this and this and this jack you just said you wanted to be a physio you gotta know this shiz <laughs> of course i'm i'm saying you should know it but like i don't maybe i'm just making excuses but <laughs> anatomy was tough you know but to be honest that was actually one of my favorite subjects right i actually signed up to actually potentially be a tutor but i didn't actually get the job unfortunately in second year but i loved it right like i i remember during swat fact when i was actually studying for that exam i would go for long walks in the afternoon and i would go from my head to my toe and i would name every single 
muscle and bone and organ and nerve and tuberosity and insertion in my body from head to toe. And I was like, this is so freaking cool. And then you forget it six months later. That's the issue. (laughs) I used to know so much. We learned so much just amazing stuff at uni that I don't know anymore. Mm. God, I wish I could have taken a circumference of my head during some of those swap backs, you know, weeks because the amount of information that goes into your brain, like I was dreaming about the muscles in the knee, right? And like all these crazy things, but um, boy. There are muscles in the knee? Of course there's muscles around your knee. Muscles surrounding your knee. There's not muscles like deep in your patella or something like that, but you know what I mean. But uh, anyway, What boy. would your alternate career be though? My alternative career. So if I wasn't a bodybuilding dietitian, I did grow up doing a lot of surf lifesaving. You know, I actually did surf lifesaving for five years on North Stradbrook Island, which was just so much fun, right? Like I did surf lifesaving from when I was in grade seven all the way up until grade 11. And um, it was just so much fun, you know, was being at the beach every single weekend and, you know, being a lifesaver and on patrol. And I even got my IRB crewy license, which IRB stands for inflatable rescue boat. So I would actually go out on that rescue, that big orange inflatable boat and someone would be the driver. And I was the person at the very front who was like, holding on to this little rope and you had to go over these huge waves and like, you know, smack down and like, it was amazing, the upper body strength. But anyway, I love the beach. I love surf life saving. And I think that if I wasn't a bodybuilding dietitian, I'd probably want to be someone like, you know, I'd love to be a coast guard or something or like a flying doctor, right? Like I probably would have actually loved to have gone through nutrition science, but then actually gone on to medicine, but then actually been able to be really active during my career too. So actually being like a flying doctor, a coast guard, and you know, when people are lost out at sea or they need help, like I could be the person that flies out in the helicopter and jumps into the ocean and saves someone from a boat that's on fire or, you know, like, I think that would be really fun. So um, I'd get to use my brain. I'd get to use my body. I'd get to help people like that would be freaking neat. And I'd be by the ocean too. I think being a flying doctor or a coast guard, that'd be pretty neat. Exhilarating, but I think I have what it takes. Yeah. Yeah, I think you would have to be a different person though than you are now. Like I don't think you would, I don't think you, now you wouldn't work well in a structured organization or a structured routine. Because someone would be dying out at sea and I'd be like, oh, sorry, like I I gotta hit the gym at two. Yeah. (laughs) Or like, you know, I gotta eat my lunch at 12. You would would wanna eat your breakfast or lunch really peacefully and you'd be out on the deck or something and then you wouldn't let anyone talk to you while you ate. Hey man, leave me alone. I like to eat in silence. Eating is special to me, you know? Like I'm a very mindful eater, so When I eat, I just like to sit down and totally relax and just listen to the birds, right? And focus on my meal. Like I really like to be mindful when I eat. I don't like to be on my computer or on my phone or anything like that. But um But Yeah. (laughs) I could It's definitely a discussion for another time, but I'm I've always been of the opinion that like you can still be mindful while doing other things. Mm -hmm. Like I I, like for me in prep right now, I find it more mindful to do something else while eating. Mm -hmm. Because like then I'll eat way faster otherwise and it'll be gone before I know it. Yeah. 
if I don't do that. So yeah, I just find with a lot of my clients, you know, like if you are eating a meal, but you're scrolling through Instagram at the exact same time, right. And then your meals all over, you don't really remember that experience. So it doesn't necessarily, fortunately you got four or five times throughout the day. Yeah. But you also have the whole rest of the day to go on Instagram, you know, spend 15 minutes actually focusing on your food, enjoying that experience, remembering that experience. I think that plays a lot with actually, you know, your hunger hormones and actually satiation, remembering like, oh man, I actually did just eat a really big meal. You know, I feel full. Now I can, I'm no longer food focused and I can move on with the rest of my day. Because sometimes, you know, if you don't remember actually eating, then you don't necessarily have a psychological reason to be like, oh, I'm full. Like, you know, I just ate some food. I don't need to feel hungry anymore. But anyway, that's totally off the topic of being a Coast Guard. <laughs> I'll, I'll eat my oats in the plane, man. You know, I can I could scoff them down. <laughs> but uh, I think that would be my alternative career. Interesting. Yes. All right. Well, uh, there's still time for that. Yes, there is. You know, in case this whole bodybuilding dietitian thing doesn't work out, you know, can always pursue that. I'm only 23. You know, I got the whole, my whole life ahead of me. <laughs> What's the next question? Okay. So this next one, it says... Tips for developing a better mind-muscle connection during training. Great. So I guess it's important to mention that this is maybe a bit more anecdotal and from mm-hmm. experience. And some of it will be evidence-based, but not. it's not like we're linking studies to this answer right yeah, now. Yeah, I guess it's just our take on the question, right? Like yeah. as if a client asked us this question. Yep. So a few things that I would say is one... Are you performing the movement correctly? And are you utilizing the correct technique? So for example, in in a lap pull down, a lot of people like really arch their back and bring their chest right up towards the the pulley. Mm-hmm. When if you and this is actually something I only learned fairly sort of recently, but if you kind of round your back more as if you're trying to force air into your your upper back you'll actually get a better mind, better connection with your lats compared to like really forcing your back into extension. Um, because if you actually look at how the lats contract, then it's kind of, you're trying to do the same thing in a bench press as you are in a lat pull down, which can't be right. Cause in one you're pressing, the other one you're pulling. Mm-hmm. So it wouldn't really, you know how in a bench press you're meant to really force your chest up and your shoulder blades back. Yeah. It wouldn't really make sense if you tried to do the same thing in a pulling movement to try and maximize connection. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think that's such an important thing to point out very first is, are you actually doing a movement correctly? Because, you know, when you see other people in the gym, obviously people are exercising all around you, but you see them doing a specific exercise that should be targeting a specific muscle group, but you actually see a different muscle group working, right? You know, like you see someone doing calf raises, but like it's super bouncy and all you see is just their quads contracting, Mm. you know? Or for example, you see someone doing a lat pull down, but like it's all just biceps, you know? And they're all scrunched up. Like it's interesting because they are working muscles but they aren't working the the muscle mm. group that they're trying to target. Or RDLs, so, yeah, no or, hammies. Yeah, exactly. Or it's, it's just, it's always been very interesting for me watching other people exercise. I'm like, that's working something, but it's not working what you're trying to target. <laughs> the other thing I was going to mention is, this might be a bit controversial, but I don't think you can get an amazing mind-muscle connection for everything. Mm-hmm. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. Like... Let's say, especially the bigger compounds, like in a, in a squat, like if you're doing six to eight reps for a squat, 
like for me personally, I don't always finish my squats with a massive quad pump or something like that. It just, it's just hard overall. It's like a full body taxing sort of movement and it definitely taxes my CNS um, like just as much as it does, does muscularly as well. Mm-hmm. So that's something I would mention, but yes, definitely something like a bicep curl or like a seated row. If you don't have any mind muscle connection in those movements and that kind of is an issue. Yeah. That, but that's something that I might even disagree with, to be honest. Like I would say that personally when I'm training and I'm trying to target a specific muscle group, if I don't actually feel that muscle group working, I feel unproductive. I feel a little bit frustrated. I genuinely feel like I'm wasting my time, right? Like I don't do squats, but if I'm on a leg press and I don't feel my quads at all, or if I'm doing heavy hip thrusts or something, I don't feel my glutes at all. I genuinely will feel a little bit frustrated and unproductive, right? Yeah, like, but what, just, would, yeah. what would be your argument then for, you know, not feeling your quads during heavy squats, but you want to feel your hamstrings during a heavy RDL? I stumped you there. <laughs> no, I was, I'm actually going to say that I don't think you need to feel your hammies in a heavy RDL in the same way that you feel your quads in a leg extension or your hammies in a leg curl. Mm-hmm. And I think it would be more of a concern if you don't get any sort of feedback like the day after or after the sets, but during the sets, I'm again, this isn't, I'm not an ex-phys or exercise scientist. So I can't give a more science-backed answer than just my anecdotal experience. So Potentially, it's because it's coming from your anecdote. And we know that, obviously, you're very strong in your RDLs. You're very strong in your back squats. So potentially, do you think actually just your central nervous system fatigue, your heart rate, just the total perceived exertion from that exercise as a whole could potentially be masking, you know, like, man, I'm getting a really good quad stimulus right now, right? Like your mind isn't actually focused on that during the movement. Mm, Potentially. I'm sure if I did like a hundred kilo squats for like 15 reps, I'm sure I would get Mm -hmm. a massive quad pump from that. But I, maybe the difficulty, the RPE is outweighing Mm -hmm. what I'm actually feeling. And I don't think that's a negative thing for me. But because I know I'm executing it well, like everyone's seen how deep I squat. It's not possible for me not to be using my quads. Yeah. And we've all seen your quads and you always say the day after, right? Like you're pretty damn sore. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it could be the same for any top level athlete trying to perform really well. Like, you know, a runner, right? A runner out there. Like you wouldn't ask a runner like, so did you feel that in your legs? And they're like. Yeah, kind of, but I definitely felt it in my heart and my lungs. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, it's it's very taxing on the body. Mm. But uh, I think, so definitely think, making sure you're doing the movement correctly. That's the first thing. But I would also argue, especially to begin with, don't ego lift. Don't get too caught up in heavy weights in order to actually sacrifice that form, right? And also staying persistent with a movement, right? Mm. Don't just do a movement for one or two weeks and be like, nah, this ain't for me. And then, you know, hop and skip. Give it a few weeks, a few months, man, a big compound movement, like something like an RDL or a hip thrust or a squat. Give it a few freaking years, okay? Even something like a lat pull down. Interestingly, my lat pull down strength hasn't gone up that much over the years. You know, I've been doing solid, consistent, just resistance training now for around five years. My lat pull down strength's maybe gone up by like 
10 or 15 kilograms, that's not significant, but my connection with my lats has increased a hundredfold, right? And my back has continued to grow despite only, you know, lifting a little bit more weight. So yeah, definitely stay persistent with the movement for sure. And I think on that note as well, I think, especially for me and my back, like just having more muscle in that area Mm -hmm. definitely helps as well Mm. because like if you're trying to again using a lat pull down if you're doing a lat pull down but you don't have any lats yeah that's true are you feeling it in your non-existent (laughs) muscles yet (laughs) and yeah so and that definitely was for me in my lower back as well like before i i was still lifting an all right amount for my lifts like i was doing maybe one 120 130 on rdls and like all right amounts for rowing and stuff like that. But I would just never feel anything in my, I would only feel it badly in my lower back. Like mm-hmm. I would strain something or get like more spinal related stuff. Actually, maybe not that bad, but <laughs> <laughs> um, I, it would never get like proper lower back doms that I get now where like it feels a lot more muscular. Like it's tight and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and same with same with all other parts of my back as well. And I guess we would have to obviously ask like an exercise phys or an exercise scientist or a physio about this, but do you think, and this kind of makes sense to me, obviously as you develop new tissue and as you build more muscle, right? Obviously we know that from a cardiovascular point of view, like you develop more veins in that area, but I'd imagine with new tissue, you need to grow more nerve endings as well, right? So if you have a larger muscle group too, you'll have more nerve endings and then you'd be able to feel it more in that muscle group. Do you think? Uh, that I have makes, no idea. That, that kind of makes sense to me, right? Because just like we said with the lap pull down and the same. But how group, do they differentiate between like touch? Like, mm-hmm. Like, well, there's more to touch, you know, like you got a bigger butt, right? Like there's more to squeeze. Ooh, I feel that more. (laughs) You know what I mean? But, uh, this is going very unscientific very quickly. Hey, we did give a, uh, a a footnote at the beginning saying this might not be evidence-based. This is just our take on it. But, um, you know, a few interesting things were raised there for sure. But I think top ones, definitely make sure you're performing a movement correctly stay persistent with that movement pattern and keep practicing it. Mm. Don't ego lift, right? Yeah, the final thing I would say is to try and find a way to feel it. Like if you're not getting any mind-muscle connection, then I would try and figure out a way that you do get a good connection and then work back from there. And it might reveal some sort of hints or guidelines to, to make you feel it consistently. So for example, if you're doing like a hamstring curl, you're not feeling it in your hamstrings, then I would one, break down the movement, ensure that you're doing it well, do a slow eccentric, try and really increase the reps, do 25, 30 reps to failure. And if you're not feeling it, then maybe even try some blood flow restriction. And then by then, if you're not feeling it, you're doing the movement well, you've tried different hamstring curl variations, all that kind of stuff, then maybe it might be a bit more psychological mm-hmm. in that you're you're trying to trick yourself that you're not actually feeling it or getting a good connection. And like I've done something similar with my back where I convinced myself that I had back pain when in reality something like I was probably healed or wasn't as sinister as I thought. So I can definitely believe that you could be tricking yourself into thinking that 
you're not getting a good connection. Mm-hmm. The mind is a powerful thing. And I want to hear your take as well. Like, what's your opinion on how different muscle groups can sometimes, you know, they respond better to different rep ranges. So for example, if you're doing a back squat, right, you might respond well anywhere between like, you know, a six to 12 rep range. But if you're doing a lateral raise or a hip abduction, you might respond better to something like a 20 to 30 rep range. What's your take on that? Again, that's a tricky question for me, but I think a lot of it has to do with type one versus type two muscle fibers, like type two, two being more anaerobic, type one being more oxidative aerobic. Mm -hmm. So type one requiring higher rep ranges, type two lower rep ranges. And I guess maybe because part of that will factor into the fatigue aspect. And like when you just look at something like a squat, who really wants to be doing 15 to 20 reps for a squat mm-hmm. or a deadlift because I think the neurological aspect will take over faster than the physical yeah. potentially. Sometimes I've thought as well because you know things like lateral raises, right, calf raises, hip abductions, you're trying to target a very small muscle group that's actually surrounded by much larger muscle groups. So for example, if you were trying to do a really heavy lateral raise, right? And you were trying to work in like a six to 12 rep range and you tried to grab like a 15 kilogram dumbbell or something, your, your delt wouldn't necessarily be strong enough to actually raise that with good form. So in that case, your traps might take over, right? Or something like I was talking before about how sometimes people do calf raises and all you see is them bouncing around on their quads, right? Obviously your quads are a much larger muscle group than your calves. So you, to actually lift that weight physically, your quads will start to recruit and try to take over that movement. So that's why I sometimes think like, in order to actually really hone in and focus on that specific small little muscle group, right? That's why you actually have to use a slightly lighter weight, really focus on your form and just isolate it. And you might just have to work in those higher rep ranges in order to achieve that. Mm, Makes more sense. And I think with the higher rep ranges, you get more blood flow as well, which really helps you feel it as well. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well guys, that was pretty much the end of our Q&A for today, but the last question we always finish on is one thing that we learned this week. So Jack, what did you learn this week? So I was doing some gardening research of all things, and mainly because our yard is infested with cobbler's pegs. If you don't know what they are, just Google them, and I'm sure you'll um, have nightmares after that. Or just come over to our place and check out our dog's tail. Yeah. Basically, it's the, that plant which sheds those little needles and they, they're really sticky on the end. They stick to everything. And yeah, our dog is completely infested with them. Every time she goes in the yard and she hates being brushed, which doesn't help. But yeah, apparently they're just a, a nightmare to get rid of because like whenever you pick one out, they leave their needles. The needles grow into the new plants. Goddamn so. plants, man. Reproducing. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I learned. Very interesting, yep. but very relevant to my life at the moment. Yes, absolutely. And But hopefully, you know, the gardener should be coming by tomorrow and Sam will no longer resemble a porcupine. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, though? Uh, this week, I actually learned that cold infusion teas are freaking delicious because anyone who knows me, they know that I freaking love tea, right? Anyone who ever saw me at UQ Sport or ever went to a class with me or anything, 
I was just notorious for carrying around my little tea mug, right? And I drink, I still drink a lot of tea, but it is so gosh darn hot here in Australia that I want to have a hot tea in the morning, right? But then I just sweat. <laughs> it's just too hot. And Jack's like, how are you drinking hot tea? And I'm like, I love it. But like, there's like sweat beads running down my forehead. Anyway, I discovered cold infusion teas. So they're actually freaking delicious. And um, it's just like hot tea, but you drink it with cold water. And, hot um, tea cold. It's really nice. Yeah, because they I don't know how they make them different because I've tried that before. I've tried putting, you know, a, a green tea bag in a cold thing of water. It tastes like crap. Is it because they're not tea leaves? It's something else. I'm not sure. I have to do my research on this stuff, but I know it tastes really nice. I've never had an issue with being hydrated. If any, I'm, I'm always very well hydrated. But definitely these cold infusion little tea bags are very, very nice to add to some cold water on these hot Australian days. So yeah, guys, get amongst it if you are a tea fanatic like me. What's the difference between like a cold infusion tea and like a diet cordial or something like that? Well, it doesn't have any of the artificial sweeteners or anything. Like it's literally just the tea leaves. So is that why you prefer the tea? Not necessarily. Like, uh, I guess diet cordial is something different, but things like, you know, I've never been the biggest fan of soft drink in general, you know, and like a lot of soft drinks, right? They just have that carbonation, that bubble. And like, I've never really been a fan, you know? And Mm, um, that's interesting. I just like tea. I find the carbonation, it's really satiating. Mm, I just burp. Like, and I'm calling people all day doing video calls. Like, I don't need to be like, hi, how was your day? And like doing a bunch of burps and stuff like that. You burp enough as it is. That's not very nice. I do not. (laughs) Anyway, guys, that was the end of our 98th episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed it, remember, please take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag myself, tag Jack, tag the bodybuilding dietitians, and we'll catch you next week. See you guys.